Uh, Why don't you guys go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Judges. The book of Judges. So for those guests who might be visiting with us this morning, my name's Eric. Uh, It's a pleasure and an honor to be able to preach God's Word to you this morning. We'd want you to know that it's our normal practice uh, to preach expositionally through the Bible. Um, and what all that means is that we study through the entire book of the Bible from beginning to the end of that book, going verse by verse throughout the weeks that we're studying that book. So last week we concluded a study that we've been doing for the last 10 months or so it's been uh, on the book of Revelation, uh, which is a wonderfully encouraging and faith-building study. Uh, and then next week we're going to be starting the Gospel of John, and I'm really looking forward to how God will use that book in our understanding of and worship of Jesus. Um, so anyway, today, this, this Sunday morning, kind of became this standalone in between the two studies. And uh, so we're going to take a look this morning at a passage that's found in Judges chapter 6, so you can go ahead and turn there, uh, about a man named Gideon. And he's one of the more famous Bible characters in the Old Testament. Uh, you might remember the story of Gideon putting God to the test with a piece of fleece to see whether or not Yahweh was actually calling him to be Israel's deliverer. Uh, Or maybe you remember the story of Gideon fighting a battle with just 300 warriors, and all they used was their voices and a few lamps covered in clay pots. Uh, But our text this morning starts at the very beginning of Gideon's story when he is visited by the angel of the Lord and taught a valuable lesson about the peace of God. So Judges 6, let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read chapter 6, verse 1 through 24. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains, and the caves, and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They'd come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Aphra, which belonged to Joash the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? 
Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word. Lord, I'm, I'm wanting to preach your word as a willing vessel this morning, but I'm just aware of weakness. Lord, so would you, would you guide my words so that they point to you alone? Lord, I pray that as I open my mouth to preach and uh, as our church body opens its ears to receive, Lord, would you fill us with faith, with the faith that comes by hearing your word? Would you grant faith by the power of your spirit through the finished work of your son, Jesus, for the glory of God the Father. And Lord, I just pray for each of us that we, that we would come this morning, that we would, you would help us to not be distracted, Lord, that you would help us to come eagerly to listen, uh, come boldly to listen. Lord, that we would come listening with ears that are bringing all of our longings and our fears and our chaos and our questions, all of our failures, Lord, and, and conform our thoughts to your thoughts, O oh God. We ask this for your glory, Lord, and and we ask that you give, I ask, Lord, I pray for this, give peace to your church this morning. Do this work for your glory. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Peace. P-E-A-C-E. Peace. Such a soothing word, isn't it? You hear that word and, and you just want it. But what exactly is peace? And why do we want it so much? Why is it so elusive, so out of reach? And can it even be actually found or experienced? And if it can, where can we find it? Where should we be looking for it? There's this ancient Hebrew word for peace. And even if you haven't studied the Hebrew language, which I haven't, you probably already know this word. And it's the word shalom. Anybody know that word, shalom? Uh, It's a rich, dense word packed with meaning. It communicates wholeness or completeness, calm, tranquility, order, harmony, a sense of flourishing. As one author put it, shalom is the way things ought to be. I think that's a helpful way to think of that word, the way things ought to be. Because that's really what we want in life, isn't it? We just want things to be the way that they ought to be. Do you go around life like thinking that way? I know uh, when, when things aren't going the way they ought to be, I can become restless or frustrated or anxious or even worse, I can get bitter and, and angry. 
In fact, this pursuit of shalom, the, the pursuit of the peace and the way things ought to be, it's what often causes the conflict that we experience in life. This kind of shalom-seeking conflict happens all the time in my house with things like where the TV remote ought to be located when I sit down and want to watch TV, or whether my kids' goldfish crumbs ought to be lurking under the bed sheets of my bed when I crawl into them at night, or whether glitter ought to have been invented in the first place, or whether used band-aids ought to be found sticking to the bathroom wall, or cartwheels ought to be done across the living room, or playing cards ought to be chucked across the house like throwing stars, or whether I ought to trip over misplaced objects like towels and purses and dirty socks and hairbrushes and Legos and those tiny little friendship bracelet hair tie thingies. Always all over the house. How tempting it is for me to fantasize about the kind of shalom we schmaltzes might experience if everyone would just bow their knee to the way I think they ought to be done. There's a massive problem with this way of thinking, isn't there? Besides that it's just prideful. Uh, We are not the ones who define shalom. I am not the one who defines shalom. But there is someone who does. And he has never and will never bow his knee to anyone. Because he is Yahweh, the Lord, the great I am. Or, as we'll see him called in our text this morning, Yahweh Shalom. Now, we're not reading in Hebrew, so we didn't see it written that way. But uh, we'll see that in, in our text, Yahweh Shalom. So, now, to the story. To get our bearings, we need to take a look back at the book that occurs right before the book of Judges. And that's the book of Joshua. So, if you turn a couple of pages back to Joshua 23... Um, we'll look at that in just a second. But Joshua was the man that was chosen by God to lead the Israelite people into the promised land of Canaan. And he had begun to do just that. The Israelites had fought a bunch of battles and had already taken over a good chunk of the land that God had promised to give them. But right near the end of the book of Joshua, before they continued to continue, to, uh, to continue conquering the lands, God gave them some very clear instructions. So look at Joshua 23. I'm going to read a little section of this, starting in verse 6. Listen to what God told Joshua and the Israelites. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not fix, sorry, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. Skip to verse 11. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare And a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. So Israel, they they continue battling, they continue conquering the nations as God continues to give them victory. But then we get to Judges chapter 1. So turn to Judges chapter 1 and look at verse 28. Judges chapter 1, verse 28. When Israel grew strong, so lots of conquering, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but 
did not drive them out completely. This is always a temptation for us, isn't it? We need God when we're weak and helpless, but as soon as we get a whiff of our own supposed strength, we think we can do things our way. Though the Israelites did win some strategic battles, they disobeyed God. They had allowed the Canaanites to remain with them in the promised land and thereby failed to fully obey what God had clearly commanded them. So the Lord disciplined them by bringing upon them many difficult and devastating years of suffering at the hands of their enemies. And eventually, the Israelites would cry out to God for deliverance. And God, being slow to anger and rich in his love and mercy, would hear those cries and graciously send a judge to deliver them out of the hands of their enemies. Then for a season, the people would again honor and obey Yahweh until eventually they'd again do evil in the sight of the Lord. And we see this cycle repeat itself over and over again in the book of Judges. And it's in the midst of one of these cycles that we find the people of Israel in our passage this morning in chapter 6. You can go back to chapter 6. <clears throat> they had been enjoying, we see at the very end of chapter 5, um, the very last sentence of chapter 5, they've been enjoying a period of 40 peace-filled years in the land, and the land had rest for 40 years, it says. But then we see in Judges 6, 1, that the Israelites still haven't learned their lesson. Look at Judges 6, 1. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. The downward spiral begins. Going on in verse 2, and the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, The people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They'd encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. The Midianites, they were plunderers. Kind of like Hopper and his gang of grasshoppers from the movie A Bug's Life. They'd come in every year, ruthless bullies. They'd pull up to your house with their cattle and they'd literally devour everything in sight that you had spent all year working on. They'd steal your livestock and eat all your produce. And then they'd just come back the next year to grab the next new crop. And they did this over and over again for seven long years. So naturally, the Israelites started to get kind of afraid of these guys. When the Midianites made their annual pit stop, the Israelites would go seek refuge in the mountains and in caves, setting up strongholds there and living as cavemen until the Midianites would get bored and move on to the next town. During these years, you had to believe it was just a life of constant fear and frustration, difficulty and destruction. It was definitely not a peaceful life. And then enter Gideon. We find him on what seems like just another miserable, exhausting day, beating the chaff off the wheat he's been secretly harvesting while hiding at the bottom of a wine press so as not to be seen by the Midianites. And you got to imagine Gideon's probably tired and restless and frustrated and sore. Because remember, this isn't the first day he's doing this. He's been doing this for seven years of days like this with no end in sight. Look at verse 6. And Israel is brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. I mean, if I were Gideon, I might have sounded something like, this is the promised land for crying out loud. 
Wasn't this supposed to be the land flowing with milk and honey? Wasn't this supposed to be the peaceful place our ancestors longed for for centuries? I swear, where is this Yahweh our fathers told us about? Does he hear our cries for deliverance? Does he even care? Gideon and the Israelites in their arrogance, they didn't deserve deliverance. And neither do we. But aren't you grateful that Yahweh doesn't treat us according to what we deserve? Yahweh does hear their cries. Yahweh does care and Yahweh does respond. And it's interesting to note that unlike previous times, instead of sending a judge like at the beginning of Judges, uh, Othniel or Ehud or Deborah, you know, these were judges that God would have sent to deliver his people. What God does first here is he sends a prophet to deliver a message. Look at uh, verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, this prophet, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. The Lord answers the cries of the Israelites by sending them his resume. He reminds them of his name, his power, his covenant faithfulness to deliver his people, their ancestors, out of the slavery and oppression of Egypt and into the very land in which they now dwell, just like he promised they would. He reiterates both his commitment to them and his command to them to keep themselves pure and separate from the people of that land. And then he reminds them that it was their choice to disobey him. This is where the story kind of takes an unexpected turn. Because normally when God sends a prophet to deliver a message to his people containing a line like, but you have not obeyed my voice, what usually follows is a litany of terrible consequences for those who have failed to obey him. Isn't that true? But this time, it's, it's different. This time, though Yahweh makes clear that Israel has failed to obey him, the expected judgment is not delivered. Instead, the scene shifts to introduce us to another character. Look at verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Aphra, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So the angel of the Lord, this isn't the first place in scripture we meet this character. Usually when the angel of the Lord arrives on a scene, something incredible is about to happen. Like when the angel of the Lord spoke to Moses through the blazing flames of the burning bush. And when the angel of the Lord freaked out Balaam's donkey by blocking his path with a giant sword. Or when the angel of the Lord called out to Abraham to stop as he was about to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar. It's that same character. But, but who is this angel of the Lord? Many theologians believe his appearance to be a theophany or a visible manifestation of God to man. Uh, Tim Keller gives us some insight in his commentary on Judges, uh, some insight into, into the identity of this character. This is Tim Keller. He says, there's a remarkable mystery and tension in all the biblical descriptions of who the angel is. On the one hand, we're told the angel said in verses 12 and 20, but we're also told the Lord said in verses 14, 16, and 18, and perhaps the angel is a communication channel, a kind of divine speakerphone. But then we run into verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, 
to Gideon. And this is remarkable and confusing, Tim Keller says. This figure is the angel of the Lord, and yet also the Lord. What does this mean? Then he goes on to say, this is one of the mysteries of the Old Testament, which is impossible to understand without the new. If there is one God, how can he both be in heaven, having sent this visible figure, and at the same time be the visible figure? If this was simply God in human form, why doesn't it just say he is the Lord, rather than also one sent by the Lord? The word angel means messenger. The only explanation that makes sense is that we have here an indication that our God is nonetheless multi-personal. We have a deep hint of the Trinity. There is good reason to see this figure as God the Son. His concern, even then, was to bring salvation and peace to his people. So, we see the angel of the Lord comes. And what is it that the angel of the Lord has come to say to Gideon? Look at verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Gideon, and said to Gideon, The Lord is with you. O mighty man of valor. What a a gracious introduction and compliment the angel gives to Gideon. And then Gideon doesn't seem to be that impressed about it. He actually appears a little annoyed with his intruding guest. Look at verse 13. Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. And given us into the hand of Midian. Gideon, it's almost like he's seeming to wonder, who in the world is this strange person anyway? And what is he talking about? He doesn't see any proof that the Lord was suddenly with them. He certainly didn't consider himself a mighty man of valor, sweating there in secrecy as a slave under the Midianites' oppression. But keep reading. In verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And Gideon said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Now, let's stop here and notice. Notice the angel Lord, he doesn't come seeking out the strongest, bravest, most popular leader or soldier in the nation of Israel. No, he seeks out an insecure loser named Gideon, a fearful, grumbling, scaredy cat hiding at the bottom of a wine press. And that should probably encourage some of us here in this room. God isn't looking for confident, overachieving, put-together, well-to-do, uber-gifted faith giants. The man whom the angel of the Lord has come to commission as the deliverer of his beloved people is a weak, worried wimp. And isn't that Yahweh's MO? Isn't that what he does? Think about the people he tends to use for his purposes. Moses, a stutterer. Joseph, abused and abandoned. Samson, a womanizer. Noah, a drunk. Jacob, a deceiver. Rahab, a prostitute. David, an adulterer. The list goes on and on and on throughout scripture. He's always using the weak and the unworthy. Even the son of God himself would one day come not as a grand king, but as a humble, dependent, helpless baby. And so here again, when the angel of the Lord comes to rescue his people, he doesn't come to a palace or some place of prominence, but to the least important man in the weakest clan in the entire tribe of Manasseh. I mean, Gideon, he must have thought like, this guy obviously doesn't know what the heck he's talking about. (laughs) He must be a lunatic to think that I could be Israel's next deliverer. But whatever Gideon thought, it's obvious 
Gideon has not clued in to the fact that the Lord himself is standing right in front of his face. All Gideon can think from his human limited perspective is that if Yahweh were truly with him, then he wouldn't be hiding out in a wine press with the Midianites ravaging the Israelites year after year. If Yahweh were with them, God's promises for peace and safety would already have been realized. That's the way things ought to be, Gideon might have thought. That's what Yahweh would do if he were with us, if he actually cared about us. And think about yourself. Isn't this the sort of reasoning of of questioning God's goodness by assessing only from what our natural finite minds can see and understand and perceive? Isn't it such an easy trap for us to fall into? I came across this quote in an article on Desiring God's website. Um, The lady's name was Vanitha Rendell Risner, I think. I don't know how to pronounce that. But man, this is an insightful, insightful quote um, as it pertains, uh, I forget what verse it is, when Gideon says, if the Lord, is it verse 5? Uh, sorry, verse 13. Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened? So that, that question there. So the, the, look at this quote. Satan turns truth into doubt with that little word, if. If the Lord is with us. If God loves me. Those statements should never have an if before them. God's presence and love are guaranteed to those in Christ. All of Scripture assures us that God is with us and that He loves us. Many of us have known this truth from childhood. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the, why did I start so high? For the Bible (laughs) tells me so. With reassurances everywhere, we must reframe our question. Instead asking, because God loves me, then why did this happen? Because God loves me, this phrase changes everything. It reorients my heart. It turns me Godward. When I ground myself on the truth that God loves me, I view my situation through a new lens. Rather than questioning his love, I seek to align my thoughts and actions with his, knowing everything in my life is a result of his love and his presence, not his disfavor or absence. Gideon shows us how dangerous trusting our limited perspective can be. Gideon wasn't totally wrong about his assessment. God, after all, had given them into the hand of Midian. Isn't that what verse 1 told us? Verse 1 told us that... that um, let's just look at verse 1. Uh, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. So Gideon wasn't really wrong about his assessment. God had done that. There was discipline being given by the Lord. But what Gideon failed to realize was that there was a very specific reason why Israel was in this place of discipline. God chose to discipline Israel because Israel chose to disobey God. And what Gideon forgot was his own people's contribution to the circumstances they were facing. God had been patient and long-suffering with his people. God himself had empowered the Israelites to drive out the enemies of the land. And as God, he alone had the right to set the terms of agreement. And he made the conditions very clear. God had promised the Israelites peace and permission to acquire a land that did not belong to them if they would just simply and fully obey his word. And while Yahweh was upholding his end of the agreement... 
The Israelites were not. Instead of fully heeding God's warnings, they allowed the Canaanites to dwell in the land with them and therefore had invited the discipline of God upon themselves. You see that in the text? Then, instead of repenting for their errors, they resented the discipline of the Lord. They accused him of making untrustworthy promises. See how close that decision is? And then until they incorrectly concluded, the Lord has forsaken us. When you think about it, what, what Gideon is doing is insanity. I mean, listen, he's, he's saying he's so focused on the difficulty of his circumstances and so intimidated by the deficiencies of his character that he can't even see his divine Savior standing right in front of his face. And he's saying, the Lord has forsaken us. I think that's a word for some of us this morning. I wonder if any of you find yourself in a similar season Wondering if the Lord has forgotten you. Maybe even forsaken you, left you, abandoned you. And I just wonder if this text is wanting us to consider whether or not living a life of disobedience to the Lord might have, have us in the season that we're in. Your disobedience might be deceiving you into denying the presence of the Lord in your life while standing in the very presence of the Lord. I wonder how often the promises God has made to us aren't experienced in the way we ought to experience them because we haven't been willing to obey the Lord the way we ought to obey Him. When we don't take sin seriously. When we don't make every effort to obey our Master. When we ignore the not-so-easy-to-overcome sins like jealousy and laziness and impatience and a critical spirit and conceitedness or double-mindedness. These are not easy sins to conquer. Oh Lord, increase our awareness of our own sinfulness and at the same time, increase our assurance of your son's righteousness. That's the thing that we need to be asking. Lord, help me to see my sin the way I really am. Help me to see where it is that I disobey you. Help me to know where I have not followed your will correctly. Lord, and then, don't let me stay there. Don't let me drown in my sinfulness and guilt. Lord, remind me, assure me of Christ's righteousness. It reminds me of a song that we sing called, Not in Me. This is the first verse lyrics. No list of sins I have not done. No list of virtues I pursue. No list of those I am not like can earn myself a place with you. And then he cries out, oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. That's honest awareness. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. And that's assurance of righteousness. Oh Lord, may this be true of us. As we continue on in verse 17, Gideon seems to be figuring out a little bit that this angel of the Lord might be someone worth paying a little bit more attention to. Look at verse 17. If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. It's almost like Gideon saying like, all right, I think there's something going on here, but would you like just hang on a second? Let me go grab something. Uh, and then the angel of the Lord says, I'll stay till you return. 
So Gideon runs to his house and prepares a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat, he puts it in a basket and the broth, he puts in a pot and he brings them to the angel of the Lord under the terebinth, which is the cashew tree, and presents them to this angel. And the angel of God says to him, verse 20, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. It's like, that kind of seems a little wasteful, okay? And he did so. And so, verse 21, the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes, and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. (laughs) I love this verse. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. (laughs) It's like, it took all of that. Uh, not the guy just talking about himself and not all the, the authority he spoke with. He had to show him this crazy little sign. And then Gideon's like, oh my goodness, that's who was here this whole time. And then he says, look at verse 22, Alas, oh Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Again, Gideon is faced with what he thinks ought to have been. I think this is, this is interesting. So again, Gideon's faced with what he thinks ought to have been, except this time what ought to have been was Gideon no longer being, because Gideon would have remembered God's words to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 20, which said, you cannot see my face, for man cannot see me and live. He knew, Gideon knew, when someone comes face to face with the Lord, it's the last thing they do. And Gideon would have fully expected God to strike him dead on the spot. You can hear the grief in his voice. Alas, O Lord God, I've seen your face. He was terrified. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary on the book of Judges helps us to understand this. He says, we Western Christians have no real sense of the terror and awesomeness of God. For we think intimacy with God is an inalienable right rather than an indescribable gift. That's so true. There is nothing amazing about grace as long as there is nothing fearful about holiness. Literally, moments ago, Gideon had accused the holy, all-powerful God of the universe, Yahweh himself, of forsaking Israel, and he accused him to his face. And this wasn't just the nation of Israel who doubted God. Gideon exposed his own lack of allegiance. Gideon himself had failed to trust God to keep the promises he made. He had denied God. He was guilty, and he knew he deserved to die. But again, (laughs) Yahweh is undeservedly loving and gracious and slow to anger. And he does respond to Gideon, but it's not at all what Gideon expects When the Lord speaks to him, he doesn't pronounce judgment on Gideon or punishment or wrath. All of those would have been appropriate. And and even in other places in Scripture, God does respond this way to man's accusing, self-centered distrust of his sovereign faithfulness. But instead, mercifully and surprisingly, Yahweh comforts and assures Gideon. When the Lord speaks to him, he doesn't pronounce judgment on Gideon or punishment or wrath. Look in verse 23. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Gideon can't believe it. He had seen Yahweh, and instead of being annihilated, Yahweh offers him the very thing for which he longed for. Shalom, peace. So what does Gideon do? Look at verse 24. Then Gideon picks his jaw up off the ground, and he builds an altar there to the Lord. 
and calls it the Lord is peace. Well, in Hebrew, what that altar's name was, was Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. See, Gideon's encounter with Yahweh that day under the terebinth tree, it marked Gideon. And the following chapters of Gideon's story show just how much of an effect that encounter had on the transformation of a whiny winepress worker to a mighty warrior and deliverer. But, but why is this story in the Bible and why, why are we preaching on this this morning? What does God want to communicate to us today through it? Well, like every story in the Bible, this story contributes to the telling of one single greater story. In this story in Judges 6, God gives us insight into his character and his determination to one day restore peace to his people once and for all. The angel of the Lord's proclamation of peace over Gideon hints at the long-awaited yet coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Prince of Peace. Colossians 1, 19-20 says it like this, For in him, in Jesus... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile or to restore to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And this is how, making peace by the blood of his cross. And God intends for each of you this morning to experience the peace of the gospel today. In the midst of your chaos, in the midst of your broken relationships, in the weariness you feel in your soul as you battle the sin in your heart and the evil in the world around us. And if this is where you find yourself this morning, Yahweh Shalom offers his peace to you through his son Jesus. Hear him calling out to you, I am with you. He is with you, young moms and dads. He is with you as you lay down your life for your young children. And sacrifice your time and energy and sleep at night and intimacy with your spouse and friendships you used to have with others. He's with you. He is with you, parents of teens, as you wrestle through the fears and joys and jealousies and failures that come with parenting the complicated and confusing life of teenagers. He is with you, students, as you manage your school workload and your parents' rules, and the stupidity of your siblings, and the ever-increasing temptations that come with getting older and having more freedom. He's with you. He's with you, parents, with adult children, as you spend sleepless nights pleading with God for their safety, and for them to make good choices, and for them to receive the gift of salvation. He's with you. He's with you, singles, as you fight to submit your desire for marriage and your fear of lifelong loneliness to the Lord, trusting that his plan for your life is good, even though it may not really feel like it. He's with you, 30 and 40-year-olds, as you brace yourself against the roaring rapids of life and cling to Christ amidst all the temptations to trust in other gods as they offer to provide rest and pleasure and security and contentment and peace for your soul. He's with you. He's with you 50 and 60 year olds and older as you struggle to find time to care for the needs of your elderly aging parents and the needs of your overly busy adult children and your way too quickly growing up grandchildren, all the while having to manage your own diminishing energy and health. He is with you. 
Hear Yahweh Shalom say this morning like he said to Gideon, I am with you. And as you continue through whatever season of life you find yourself, may, may we be a church filled with men and women and children who resolve to obey the Lord in everything. For now, though this peace will only be experienced in a limited and imperfect, not yet fully realized way, um, and I'm so excited about getting to study John, but here's a little snippet of John. Jesus promises us in, this in John 14, verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. So when you're tempted to be anxious, remember the admonition of the Apostle Paul at the end of Philippians 4. It says, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As we studied in Revelation, one day we're not going to need our hearts and minds to have guardrails. Yahweh Shalom will return everything back to the way it ought to be. For now, we need the peace of God to guard our hearts and to guard our minds. But that day, everything will be brought back to order. Harmony will be restored. Our souls will finally be at rest. And each of us will be fully satisfied in the presence of God, simply enjoying him in the world he created without anxiety or worry about the future. Don't you long for that day? I long for that day. I long for the day that Yahweh Shalom returns everything back to the way it ought to be. Let's pray. Oh Lord, until that day, until that day, Lord, we ask you to guard our hearts and guard our minds. Lord, I don't know, I don't know the story of everyone in this room. Lord, I don't know um, the current status of where each of us um, finds ourselves today. Lord, I, I don't need to know. Lord, you know. You know exactly where each of us are. You know exactly where we feel forsaken. You know exactly where we feel frustrated. You know exactly where we feel forgotten. Lord, where we feel like we failed. Lord, you know this. Lord, you know where chaos resides in our hearts. Lord, you know um, what we're afraid of. Lord, you know these things, Lord. And, and Lord, it's to you that we look. We don't want to try to figure ourselves out. But we want to look to you, God. We know you've been doing this for a lot longer than we have. <laughs> you've been managing the souls of men for, for centuries, ever since the beginning. Lord, you, you created us. Lord, so why do we try to figure out ourselves on our own? Lord, help us to run to you. Oh, ancient of days, Lord, help us to come, to sit at your feet, to allow your word to assess us, uh, to allow ourselves to be conformed to your thoughts and your ways. Lord, to receive the peace that you want to supply to us. Lord, help us. Help us to obey you fully. Lord, help us to remember that Jesus is with us, that the Holy Spirit is with us. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you for Gideon and his life and the way that he... I just so resonate with his, um, 
his insecurity. Lord, thank you for his example and the way that you met him. Uh, Lord, would we, would we seek to meet you in similar ways and to trust you in similar ways? Help us to live this week in light of this word, we pray. Amen. Well, Josh is going to lead us in a song, um, but I'm going to invite Miss Becky and uh, Kenzie, I think, are up for the prayer team. If anybody wants to come and respond in prayer, uh, maybe, maybe some of these descriptions hit really close to home for you. This is a great time to come and, and to do some business with the Lord, just to, to say, Lord, I, I need to, to right now, before I get back distracted in the world, I need to come and lay myself in, at your feet. Let's come and do that. Let's use this altar space up here to do that. If you want someone to pray for you, Miss Becky, Kenzie will be here. I'll be up here. Um, but let, let's, let's submit ourselves to this word. Let's ask the Lord to assess us, and let's receive his peace as we sing.